This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Nancy Padilla with Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Karin Fenelon. Um, and I feel like I said her last name wrong right now, but I'll let you, can you, can you say it really nicely for our audience to hear? Yes. Oh, no problem. I mean, I mean, you said it beautifully. I had heard so many other versions. So the, the way it could be pronounced is Karine Fenelon. Fenelon. Beautiful. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sounds so much better when you say it. Um, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Biology in the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, thank you for being with us here today. Uh, I'm excited to, to hear your story properly. And uh, we always like starting by asking the women we interview, how did you first become interested in the brain? Yes, so thank you so much for having me. Um, I think it started when I was an undergrad. So I, I was born and grew up in Montreal. And as an undergrad at McGill University, um, between my third, uh, second and third last year, um, I asked a professor in physiology, his name was Dr. Mortola. Um, he was fascinating and uh, trying to understand um, the mechanism under underlying respiration. And so I he invited me in his lab and made me perform a surgery that was kind of technically challenging. I had to isolate the carotid body and, you know, just see the effect of destroying the carotid body on the rhythm of body um, temperature and uh, respiration. Uh, so just to mimic hypoxia, basically. And so this really introduced me to kind of become a little bit more um, fascinating by physiology. And then I said to myself, well, those are different systems, right, that regulate many different aspects of our bodies. But then what is the main command, uh, you know, that is uh, at, the, at the forefront of that uh, of those systems? And I said, oh, yeah, it, it's, it's the brain, <laughs> right? So this is, I think, how I became interested in, in this uh, area. This professor just really um, welcomed me in his lab um, without any, you know, any barriers. And so really allowed me to think about what I wanted to, go, to do next. And was this your biology professor or were you taking a class with this professor? Yes, yes, I was taking a class. He was fascinating. I mean, he had this beautiful Italian accent and so very charming. He would walk in the classroom only with keys and say to us, don't write, don't write, just watch me. So Listen. <laughs> we were just yeah, just listen. Captivating. He was captivating. And so, yeah, this is why I, I asked him if I could join his lab in the summertime. And we had a fantastic time. And what class were you taking? So this was respiratory physiology. Ah. And actually, in this summer, the experiment I performed were published. And this is my first ever publication that I was able to publish with him again. He gave me the opportunity to publish the first author paper as an undergrad. Amazing. And, I mean, Amazing. Yes. So you, you started your career, <laughs> you know, in the research size pretty early. Got to do right. that first author paper. Again. Yeah. Yes. Due to this, this professor who really gave me this opportunity. And so from your undergrad, at which point did you know you wanted to get a PhD? Ooh, uh, that's a great question. So from there, um, I decided to actually perform a um, master's thesis first. Okay. So of course, it was the year where I was still at, uh, living with my parents. And then there was this opportunity to study two hours away from the parents' house. So I just <laughs> Of course, there was an area of study that I really appreciated. And um, again, so this also was a year where there was the, the, the Summer Olympics. And I was always fascinated to see those, those printers from different countries just run to the finish line. And I was just wondering how they do that and I, I i knew of course from my i my my physiology classes that muscles were important so i decided to do to understand more about how muscle contract and so this is why i went at the university of sherbrooke two hours from montreal 
and I perform a um, master's in uh, biology and biophysics uh, to further understand excitation contraction mechanism mechanisms using uh, frog skeletal muscle fibers. Wow. So from there, from there, actually, um, had I had a fantastic time again under the mentorship of Dr. Paul C. Pape. Fantastic person, so so fantastic that he came to my wedding a few years afterwards. Wow. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but under his mentorship, I grew as a student, but also as a person understanding academia and those challenges. And so, you know, funding issues arose. And at the end of my master's thesis, uh, my, my mentor could not pay me. Wow. So I had to go live with him and his wife in Vermont. Right, So I had, we crossed the border every day. Because his house was in Vermont, and uh, to finish my my thesis, and so my master's thesis, and so afterward I had to go back to my parents because I was actually broke, <laughs> so I had to come back to Montreal, and I pursued a PhD in uh, further understanding how those muscles are further controlled by brainstem neurons. So I wanted to further understand. Okay, so now that I know how muscles kind of work, what what is the upstream mechanism that activates those neurons? And so I, I dedicated my, my research on, in the brainstem region. Wow. So you started in the periphery, respiration, yes. muscles, and then the muscles brought you to the brain. Right, right. Muscle, actually to the brainstem. To the right? brainstem. So I okay. was focusing. Yeah, yeah. It's important because you will understand that this is also what I'm doing today, right? So but during my PhD, I used... Another model it was not frogs, uh, it was not rats, like in the respiratory um, studies. It was a, a um, animal model called the lampreys. The lampreys are at in, in, in between an eel and a leech, so it's not a very beautiful. Um, Does it look like a worm? Is it a water that's, that, that's it. Okay. Yes, but the adult can be very very big, so it could be like meters long. Uh, but the, the larvae are, are very small. So, yes, yeah, so we could use those animals, maintain them in vitro, and allow them to swim by but pinning down the, the rostral part of their, of their bodies. So this allowed us to uh, do two things at the same time. First, record a locomotor activity, so swimming, and perform intracellular sharp electrophysiological recordings in the brainstem. So what we wanted to understand is how neurons in the brainstem activate muscles to elicit the swimming activity. Mm. And so this can be done in vitro using this animal model. So then, so then they can, they'll keep trying to swim even if you have them head fix or, you know. That's I, correct. Yeah. Yes, that's it. It's the, it's the fish version of the head fix <laughs> rodent. Right. Exactly. Okay. So we could do calcium imaging, sharp electrophysiological recordings to characterize the electrophysiological signature of these neurons and how, as a population, they actually activate uh, locomotion, so, the initiate yeah. locomotion. Before we jump into what's currently yes. happening into your lab, tell us in a few sentences what your PhD thesis was about. Mm-hmm. What do you find? So we, yeah, so we knew that animals can, uh, you know, th there are some brainstem neurons important for locomotion. But what we wanted to understand is how those neurons in the brainstem do that. So more, more precisely, we wanted to know the um, intrinsic properties of these neurons. So what uh, receptors are important, what channels are important to activate those cells so that they can then send this activity downstream to the spinal level and into to muscles. So with my sharp uh, electrophysics recordings, I was able to uh, um, understand that glutamate receptors, AMPA and NMDA receptors are important for the activation of those cells. And also another channel called the ICAN, it's for a non-cationic um, channel that allows a lot of uh, positive ions to flow into the cell and allow the cells to be activated in addition to uh, glutamate um, receptor channels. And so um, this was important because if you have, let's say, an animal model of disease, you can try to figure out what is this disease affecting by knowing, uh, in, in, in first by first knowing what are the the physiological properties of those neurons. Okay, yeah, so I guess that the big picture implication of this work is like any disease that, in, that affects movement 
um, yes. or affects the muscles, like then you, we can understand with the basic work you did, we can better understand how if the brainstem, if there's any changes in the brainstem that lead to those changes in muscle yes, control. Yes, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yes. Cool. Yes, and good. that that channel, I can, is it? Yes. It's that's like quite a positive name. I can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. But I'm curious. Okay. Is it like I K A N? Yes. Oh, sorry. I can. No, it's I C A N. It's the calcium activated non-selective cationic channels, uh, mostly ah, okay. allowing sodium to flow through. Okay. Uh, it is blocked by a specific drug called fluphenemic acid, so you can figure out whether a cell contains these channels or this is allowing this conductance to occur by blocking this with this So this it's drug. a calcium channel, but potassium goes through it too. Is that so, what you So said? it's a calcium activated. So you need calcium oh, to activate it. that's why it, it has sorry. calcium in the name, but it's, yes, uh, yeah, yes. it flows and then potassium. Sodium, sodium, sodium flows potassium. Through. Okay, yes, okay. Yes, right. mostly. But it's non-selective, so a lot of other ions okay. flow, flow through but that But it's channel. calcium yes. activated. Okay, that's why yes, it's I can. Yes. Okay. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then, um, so at the end of your PhD, well, I know because I met you when you were a postdoc. I know you chose right. to do a postdoc. So tell us a little bit about that transition and yes. and what you chose to study in your postdoc. Right. Okay. Again, you know, it was driven by some kind of facts of life. So I was excited because at that point I was able to tell my family and friends that I know how muscle kind of work. I know that there are cells in the brainstem that allows those muscles to be activated. But then I wanted to go more rostral than the brainstem and understand the brain, right? But at that time, my PI, my, my PhD uh, advisor said, you know, Karen, there are two labs or two different labs that, that study kind of sensory information processing or pain, this is going to be a very important uh, um, kind of theme in the future. So you should choose two labs that are studying pain. And I was like, oh, okay, well, all right. So he has said, there's one in at Université Laval. It's again an university in, in Canada and very, very nicely, very re hardly renowned. But then he said, oh, but there's another, there's another lab in New York City. And I was like, oh my gosh, I felt, I felt like a toddler who was presented by green veggies and then a big bowl of ice cream, like, you know, <laughs> what can I choose? So I said, oh, I said, let me, let me go to New York. So in this, <laughs> this choice, I chose the lab of Dr. Amy McDormott at Columbia University. And she studies, uh, she, she used to study, she's now retired, uh, pain uh, mechanisms. So I'll try to f figure out how pain is uh, elicited and ideally identify, identify pain treatments. That, that, that was her, the, the main goal of her lab. And she used um, electrophysiology mainly in her lab, along with uh, immunohistochemical analysis. And is experiment. this in vitro electrophysiology? So yes, yeah, so okay. she used in vitro preparations of spinal cord in rats with the, the dorsal roots attached. Uh, so she could actually kind of figure out the mechanism through yeah. that preparation. And I'm guessing that was your expert expertise as a as a doctoral student, right? Because the way you're describing right. that you identify a channel that had to be in vitro, so you you knew that technique, and then you're applying it to a new field, new questions, basically. Exactly. But the the, the little trick is here. During my PhD, I performed sharp intracellular ah, recordings. Okay. But I wanted to know a technique called patch clamp recordings. I wanted to learn that. But so during my PhD thesis, nobody in the lab knew how to do patch clamp recordings. However, in the laboratory of Dr. Amy McDermott uh, in New York, they knew how to do that technique. So I was like, oh, okay, I can learn this patch technique. That is uh, a, key, um, a key way to further understand with precision how neurons work, basically, right? And so, and also at the same time, I would also understand the pain pathways, which again, according to my mentor, was the field to be in. Interestingly, again, I don't know what, what, what happened with me. Uh, funding issues occurred again, right? So I During was there your postdoc, yeah. During my postdoc. And so the lab was a little bit, you know, faced with some uh, funding issues. But there was a lab next door, the lab of Dr. Joseph Gogos, who needed an electrophysiologist to understand the brain mechanisms underlying psychiatric disorders. And I almost fell out of my chair because I was like, oh my gosh, 
I came from a locomotor kind of pathway, right? Uh, training. And now I have to shift gears and just adapt myself and learn the literature from scratch, from the psychiatric disorder uh, approach. But I, I did that and I never regretted what I did because um, this was a, get, a great shift. Not only was I still able to contribute to the, the field because I, I stayed physically in the lab of Amy McDermott and I learned the Pashkin technique, but I and also was participating in the lab meetings. So I was still keeping up with mm. the, the pain uh, field, but I also was in the psychiatric diseases field uh, by joining Dr. Uh, Joseph Gogos and using his beautiful animal models um, mm. that, uh, again, recapitulate some of the genetic um, impairments uh, associated with those psychiatric disorders. So I was able to use the techniques that I was trained with and to answer different types of questions. Wow. So it was sort of like serendipity of like, you know, you went to a lab, that lab had some funding issues and that led you to a completely new field. Right. Exactly. A completely new field. Um, but so I kind of, I got a big smile on my face when, you know, upon reading again, the literature of psychiatric disorders, of course, I was focusing at that time on two brain regions that have been shown to be critically impaired in um, the disease that we were studying at that time was schizophrenia, which is the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, right? Those are the two regions that have been really um, appreciated. And and, and uh, now we, we know that these two regions are, you know, really impaired by these diseases. But, you know, by reading, you know, again, lots of reviews, there was this sentence that I kept reading, which was sensory motor gating and is is a is very important for attention processes, and it is impaired in schizophrenia. I was like, okay, what what is sensory motor gating? And so I I digged into the literature, and this is a filtering mechanism. This is important for all of us, and that is uh, that contributes to us being able to focus attention because it filters out irrelevant information so that you can focus on the on the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so, but this filtering mechanism is impaired in schizophrenia. It is a hallmark of schizophrenia and it involves neurons located in the brainstem. So I was no like, way, oh, in the brainstem. Eureka. <laughs> this was my Eureka moment. I said to myself, if, if I open the lab one day, I will combine the knowledge I gained during my PhD right, the brainstem area in the lampreys. And I will kind of combine that with the with a question I'm interested in, which is linked to psychiatric disorders. And that is what I'm doing today. So, so it came from that, just kind of still making sure that I, I'm in, incorporating what I, I was trained, even during my PhD, and then applying that in a question that I use today. Wow, that's fascinating because I would have never thought that it happened in the brainstem. You know, I was thinking yes. cortex, cortex, yes. but it's happening way earlier. Right. It's a reflex. So the way, so how do we measure or how do we assess or study sensory motor gating? So again, it was uh, the, Dr. Francis Graham from the University of Wisconsin who developed a beautiful assay that is translational, has been accepted as a translational assay because it can be done not only in humans, but from worms, uh, fish, lampreys, non-human primates, and of course humans, and it's called the pre-pulse inhibition of the startle reflex. The beauty of that assay is that it involves, or you can use many different modalities to activate that, that uh, startle reflex. So you can use touch, you can use a sound, you can use uh, visual inputs. And what the only thing that you need to try to do is elicit a startle reaction. So this doesn't need any training, right? Again, if you, even if you're a fish, you don't need any training to elicit this behavior. So it's an easy assay to be performed in uh, experimental systems in the lab and also in humans. Right? And so you are, the, the goal is to um, study how this startle reaction is modulated. And this is a readout of sensory motor gating, basically. Okay. So you use a startle response and the modulation of that startle response as a readout of sensory motor gating. Yeah. 
So normally this mm-hmm. startle reaction can be modulated in, um, in, in healthy subject, healthy humans, healthy animal models. But in animal models of disease and also in humans, this startle reflex is very difficult. It's the, the modulation changes. So that's how you can quantify and, and, and um, study sensory motor gating by looking out at how this startle reflex is affected. And the, I mean, I'm thinking of the, ro- the little bit of rodent startle reflex, <laughs> like a pre-post inhibition uh, knowledge I have. And yes. correct me if I'm wrong. So the startle, like the first time you present the stimulus that evokes a startle, then the startle is large, but Wild types should like have a decrease in their startle response. So that's what, is that the modulation you're talking about? That's right. The modulation is an attenuation of the startle reflex. It's as if, you know, we tell you don't startle because I'm going to present to you a big loud noise. So the way we assess that is by presenting a very mild sound first. And then this is followed by a loud noise. Okay, normally we use sound because it's easy as a, mm-hmm. a modality to use. It's very nicely reproducible. So normally, typically in a, a normal and healthy control mouse, the startle reaction should decrease because the, the mouse is like, oh yeah, Habituate, I know. Right. A big, yes, yeah, that's it. There's a, I know that the big sound is coming, so I won't startle as much. Interestingly, in the lab where I did my postdocs, right, in Joseph Gogol's lab, those mice that, that we call the mouse model of schizophrenia, they showed a reduction in this inhibition. In other words, even if we told the mice, don't startle, there's a big noise coming, the mouse startled super big. There yeah. was a big startle. She could not inhibit the startle response. And this, is, uh, this recapitulates the phenotype seen in um, patients with um, schizophrenia. Yeah, and just to go back yes. to the mouse model that you use in your yes. postdoc in the Gogos lab, just for those that um, want to learn more about it, I think I have this knowledge because I was <laughs> nearby in the same building. Right. Was this the 22Q11? Deletion syndrome. Okay, yeah. Yes, that's correct, Nancy. Yes, that's the same model that uh, some of you guys use in the Josh Gordon's laboratory. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, this, the 22Q uh, deletion syndrome mouse model is called the DF16 mouse. And so that's a uh, mouse model that recapitulates a lot of the phenotypes seen in um in humans, yeah, to the same deletion. And just to go back for a moment, just so that we know yes. what you did with that mouse in your postdoc, and then we can go yes. back to the present. Yes. But like, um, in a sentence, like, what, what was your, what did you, um, found yes. with this mouse in your postdoc work? So it was ex- this. These were exciting times. It was about was 20, 20, 2012 or something like that. You know, um. Optogenetics was barely out, right? It was barely published by the Stanford group, you know, um, at Boyden and, and, and others, and the Dithera lab, of course. Uh, it was so exciting. It was exciting times. We were, I think, among a few labs on campus who were trying that approach. So the goal was to um, understand the underlying mechanism of working memory deficit in these mice. So um, in schizophrenic patients and in mouse model of of schizophrenia, those mice exhibit working memory deficit. You know, it's a short-term memory that allows you normally to just memorize for a short period of time an information that is critical for a moment. Let's say say you want to, I don't know, you need to go get some coffee, but you need to remember that you left your phone on your desk. So it's a short-term memory mechanism that allows you to say, okay, let me go heat my coffee or get my coffee and then come back and get my cell phone and then, you know, do what, what, what you needed to do. So it's, a, it's important, right, in everyday life. But patients with schizophrenia cannot do that, right? They have an impairment in that, in that short-term mm-hmm. memory that is affecting their, their, their daily lives. And so to help those patients, we want to figure out why they are unable to do that. So using this mouse model, we knew that the two brain regions that I mentioned before, the hippocampus Mm -hmm. and the prefrontal cortex, uh, are linked anatomically and are important for that process to occur, for working memory to work, (laughs) right? And so we wanted to assess that connection in animal model of disease. So we use the 22Q deletion syndrome mouse model and we use optogenetics to precisely uh, manipulate that connection. And so we showed in these mice that this connection was impaired, the synaptic connection linking um, the prefrontal cortex and the uh, uh, hippocampus. 
And we further showed that, you know, those neurons independently in those two brain regions had electrophysiological abnormalities. So the way normally neurons work is they can become stronger or weaker depending on the context they are in, depending on the system or the, the circuits they are in. And so this uh, plasticity was abnormal in the 22Q mouse model. So this is a first grain groundwork that allows then the researchers to push forward and figure out what, uh, let's say, target that can uh, can be further studied to uh, develop treatment. So, so that, that is why we do those experiments, to figure out where and with more precision we could target treatments to help those patients. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. And now I guess like, yeah, so so you briefly during your postdoc uh, worked yes. in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, but you've gone back to the brainstem. That's um, right. From the perspective of the sensory gating deficits of that That's right. are common, not just in schizophrenia, but maybe in other psychiatric disorders Very as well. Good. Yeah. Yes, that's that's the thing. Of course, because I mentioned before, so um, different uh, systems, so def- the visual systems, um, pre-pulse inhibition mechanism is can be impaired, and so different diseases have pre-pulse inhibition deficits. So autism, uh, of course, schizophrenia, um, Huntington disease, Tourette syndromes, uh, many others. Although they have they have different uh, other symptoms. One common is sensory motor gating deficit. And the problem is that we still don't know the basic circuit underlying sensory motor gating, even under physiological conditions. So if you want to target a treatment, right, Mm. how are you going to target it if you don't initially know what brain regions are important for that circuit to work and what is the circuit and what are the cell types? So that is what um, my interest is currently, is to figure out Using also so using two things, using um, healthy control animals, and also animal models of disease to figure out. Um, and are you doing the underlying this mechanisms. in your different mo- animal model? I forget. I already forgot yes. the name. What was the name? The lamper. Lamper. Oh, the lamprey. Lamprey. No, the lamprey. No. <laughs> Maybe I could do that in the lampreys. You know, it, it would be another. You're doing this in mice. Okay. Yes, we're doing okay. that in mice. In here. Okay. Yes, I stayed in contact with Dr. Gogos. And so uh, he was very excited by the initial, um, the initial results we obtained in control mice. And so during the pandemic, I just sent him his, uh, sent him our results, the result of my students actually, my fantastic students, and he uh, initiated a transfer of his mouse models, the one that I use as a postdoc, uh, here at UMass. So I didn't anticipate that it would take two years for those mice to arrive. Yes. Well, because, of course, again, the the difficulty of the pandemic. But when they arrived, oh, my God, we were so excited. We were so excited to try to kind of validate our hypothesis using these mouse models to see if we could rescue their impairment. So to validate uh, circuits that we have identified in uh, wild-type mice, we wanted to manipulate some part of the circuit that we had identified to see if we could rescue the phenotype uh, seen in these mouse models. Which are the circuits you've identified on the wild type? Yeah, very good. So as you mentioned, you know, if you read the literature so far, a lot of the experiments uh, and the, the results uh, that are, you know, or the, 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 the key brain region that have been associated with uh, pre-pulse inhibition is the prefrontal cortex and um, the hippocampus. But more recently, other groups, so groups in Canada included, have identified the brainstem as the core of the startle circuit, right? And so the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex are among regions that are involved in sensory motor gating, but they are anatomically remote from the core of the circuit. So us and, and other groups have first to first identify a pathway, we put dyes or to label cells that are connected to each other. So we put retrograde and enterograde dyes. And so by using these um, track tracing experiments, basically, we identify the amygdala as an important hub, which what is connected to the brainstem startle circuit. And so we were like very perplexed initially by that finding. 
other group have I so identified these uh, this pathway, but not in the context of sensory motor gating. So after having identified this connection anatomically, we started to do electrophysics experiment to to figure out what are the cell types and what is the nature of that connection. So more surprisingly, we found out that this connection was glutamatergic. And is Very which odd. is the direction? Is it brainstem to amygdala or amygdala to brainstem? Amygdala to brainstem. So oh. central amygdala to brainstem. Yes. So central amygdala typically is, is known as an inhibitory region. Oh, a right. lot of gabaritic yes. neurons are located in this region, yes. But you found glutamatergic cells. Yes, and so my students were scared and they were like, <laughs> <laughs> they thought they had done something wrong. And I said, no, 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 you know, let's let's follow the data. And if it is true, then you need to show me that this connection is glutamatergic by any means necessary. Yes. And so they did. So we did in situ hybridization to show that there are dermatologic neurons in the central nucleus of the amygdala. We used um, uh, the volume rendering technique to show that the, the fibers coming from the amygdala contacting those brainstem neurons are contacting them very closely. So they're close appositions. We further confirmed that this close apposition is a functional synapse using patch clamp recordings. So you know that glutamate is coming out, is that what you mean? That's yeah. right. Yes, I told my students, of course, to block that response mm-hmm. to further confirm that it is a glutamatergic uh, synapse, yes, using blockers of, of glutamate receptors. Um, and then, and only then, when they really showed me without any doubt that this was a glutamatergic synapse, we then used an in vivo optogenetic approach to confirm the function of that um, pathway in in vivo uh, during the, the pre-post inhibition wow. task. Right? So the first thing we did is to silence that connection. Because of course you can activate and, and do other things, but I wanted to know if you silence that connection, will you see an obvious change in the pre-pulse inhibition assay? And we did. So we used two different optogenetic tools, archaeorhodopsin and halorhodopsin, just to make sure. And we saw that those two tools who are inhibitory optogenetic tools did the same thing, which is uh, re- reduced pre-pulse inhibition. So okay. we were very excited about that. So yes, that means yes. that these amygdala neurons that are going to the brainstem are are causing that prepulse yeah. or that right. like um, that startle response. They're part of the exactly. Startle. Huh? Yes, yes. And so it, so we actually we were surprised because if we are activating a pathway that is glutamatergic, how can it contribute to an inhibitory phenomenon? Right? We were like, oh, wait. So this glutamatergic pathway must activate something inhibitory so that it, it leads to a pre-post inhibition, right? So to do that, we used uh, um, um, genetic transgenic animals, uh, mice, that express the Cree recombinase enzyme in tiny neurons in the brainstem that are glycinergic. We could not have targeted those neurons otherwise. You know, we needed these mice. So um, Dr. Feldman from UCLA graciously shipped us these mice. And we were very grateful for this gift because, you know, this was the only way we could use an optogenetic Cree-dependent tool to manipulate those tiny neurons in these mice. And so when we, we furthered manipulated these tiny neurons, that we think are the ones activated by the amygdala, Uh because we did actually those anatomical uh, experiments and we confirmed that, we confirmed the actual circuit. We confirmed that the amygdala glutamatergic neurons activate those brainstem tiny glycinergic neurons and this pathway is important for pre-pulse inhibition. Can you back out a little bit? And why is it called pre-pulse inhibition? Very good. Because it is the pre-pulse, like the mild sound or the cue, mm-hmm. that will inhibit a subsequent oh, startle response. That's okay. why it's called, yes, pre-pulse inhibition okay. of this 
subsequent startle response. And that's yeah. why you're that's why you were saying that how could something excitatory be part of an inhibition of our response? Yes, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes, uh, that's correct. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah. And so we were excited uh, because actually the amygdala is also impaired in many patients uh, with um, pre-pulse inhibition disorders, right, deficits. So including the mouse model that I used um, as a postdoc. So when we received these mice, guess what, guess what we, tr we tried to do? We tried to rescue this mouse model, right, this, the, this phenotype in this mice, by manipulating this pathway. Initially, we thought it was going to fail. We just said, ah, you know what, let's just, let's just do that. So we hypothesized that maybe we could drive this pathway, we could activate this pathway to rescue the pre-pulse inhibition deficits in these mice. And when my students did this experiment, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. She, she actually rescued it. So we were very, very, very excited. So that's what we are currently writing. <laughs> We're writing yes. this, this, um, this data right now, this manuscript that is showing that we could rescue um, this phenotype. Uh, the sensory motor getting deficits using an animal model of disease because we were guided by the, the, the results we obtained from wild type mice. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story, <laughs> right? Like in terms of not only like, not only is a fascinating finding given like, well, I know a little bit about the amygdala and I have never yes. heard about glutamatergic cells in the central yes. amygdala. Um, so, uh, yes. not only like a, a rare subpopulation, yes. um, and uh, having a control in this pre-pulse inhibition and then also connecting it to this, uh, genetic mouse model, um, right. and, and being able to rescue that, that pre-pulse yes. inhibition or sensory gating deficit. Uh, yes, yes. No, I agree with you. So the reviewers were, you know, very, very challenging. Of course, as I had told my students, you know, they wanted to see pure evidence that those neurons were glutamatergic. Right, uh, we, yes. we faced resistance. Yes. yes, we faced. But I was like, that's, if this is what you found, you know, you guys just go after this. Just show with different approaches that this is the case. Um, because as I told you, my students were scared. They were, they were like, oh my gosh, we will never publish that work because, yes, it was. But it was fascinating for me at the same time. And we, I said, you know, if this is not the case, then we will figure it out. But you know, we just need to push through, think about experiments that will point to that direction. And that's it. And so we finally made it happen. The in situ was really the 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 last drop that <laughs> allowed us to push that work. And um, for those that don't have like knowledge of what in situ is, what yes. what do you do with that technique, and why was that so important? Yes, yeah, sorry. So it identifies a messenger RNA. So it's a genetic marker that the to, for of the identity of those neurons, basically. And so we use the glutamatergic transporter ah, as okay. a, um, yeah. a, yes, yes, uh, to, to really show that those cells were uh, glutamatergic and can release the neurotransmitter glutamate. Yes. <laughs> so um, before we switch gears and talk more about yes. like the, the challenges in all yeah. in, in your career, like let's let's look forward in your lab. What what are you hoping uh, to that the next couple of projects are going to be? Yes. So, of course, the amygdala is not the only brain region that is disease relevant and also within the startle pathway. So we want to expand, you know, go again. So first of all, what is activating the amygdala? Right. In addition, uh, in in order for this brain regions to be involved, but also what other brain regions that uh, may contribute to that uh, pathway as well. So many of of, of you might might have uh, read that there is another region in the midbrain that is called the pedunculopontine tegmental area that has been shown to contribute to pre-pulse inhibition. We are also interested in figuring out uh, how this is happening. Does that, is that a region that's right next to the ventral tegmented area? Like That's right. Yeah. That's the, and the lateral, the LDTG, yes. Is it also dopamine area. neurons? Like, does it so also? it is a very good question. So maybe, actually... Back in the days, people thought it was mainly a cholinergic, a cholinergic center. Okay. But more recent advances show that this region is composed of three main cell, cell types that are almost equally distributed or dense. 
uh, is cholinergic, GABAergic, and glutamatergic. Oh. So recent uh, groups ruled out the role of the cholinergic neurons in pre-pulse inhibition. But so there are other cell types that still needs to, um, uh, we still need to figure out what they're doing. Because if you lesion of if you completely destroy this area has been shown to contribute to people's inhibition and anatomically it is connected to the brainstem so to the part of the something brainstem. in there that's right okay. that's right it is something in there that is um that contributes to sensory motor getting and patients uh, with um sensory motor getting deficit the cytoarchitecture of those neurons in this uh midbrain area is affected, impaired. There's, you know, there's, there are changes there. So, I mean, there's a need to further understand um, how this region contributes to um, pre-boss inhibition and how disease is affecting it. Um, yeah. Right, so your lab's going to continue mapping the yes. distinct yes. circuits to the brainstem part that, That's right. that controls the... But we want... Yeah. Yes, yes, sorry. We want to use a technique that I was, my gosh, I was blown away just before the pandemic at SFN, the Society for Neuroscience meeting. It is called the CalLight technique. It has been developed in 2018 by Dr. Huang Bei Kuan. And basically it is a, I call it the calcium version of CFOS. So what we want huh. to do next is to identify with more precision the cells that are involved in sensory motor gating. So we can tag these neurons using that technique, and then we can further manipulate them because uh, this technique also involves uh, optogenetic tools that allows you to, f- to focus on only those cells that are involved in the behavior. So you can activate them and inhibit them. What's the name of the technique again? Cal for calcium, mm-hmm. and so Cal and light. Cal, cal light. light. Okay. Yes. So yes. is it that um, a molecule is expressed when like there's high levels of calcium? That's right. Okay. That's right. So there's a system that will allow the expression of um, light sensitive tools to be expressed ah. when calcium is present. So only when neurons are active. Oh. It involves uh, mm-hmm. you shining light on those neurons. It's a light-sensitive approach, but it is a beautiful approach to allow you to identify only those neurons that are active during precise epochs of a behavior. Right. Instead of like optogenetically manipulating all of the cells in a circuit, you could yes. just do the ones that are active because it's calcium-dependent. That's oh, it. Cool. It'd be more precise. Yes, exactly. That that seems pretty yeah. transformative. Yeah, it's a yes. alternative method to like tagging cells. Exactly. Uh, you know, with the I forget what it's called, but like the CFOS mouse or something yes. like with with That's a right. drug dependent expression. Yes. Um, cool. Exactly. So more precise. This is definitely more yes. more temporally precise. Yes. So you're excited about um, establishing that technique in your lab. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, incorporating that in the lab and then continue understanding the the circuit. Amazing, amazing. So now, like, the way we've told this story, it sounds like it's such a smooth, you know, like, smooth sailing and everything's easy, but we know that there's challenges um, uh, in, in, in our scientific career paths, both on the personal and the scientific part of it. So can you please share with us a challenge that you've had um, in your career so far? Okay. Actually, it, it, I can go even before. So as a, a descendant of Haitian parents, uh, they really instilled in both me and my sister uh, the knowledge that you are you are a person of color. <laughs> so even my, before my first day at school, my mother really told me like, you know, you are a black person. You will need to work hard and, you know, really focus to succeed. And then she said, enjoy school. <laughs> so, but, you know, you really, she really prepared me to these kind of situations. Of course, as a, as a black woman, um, I faced the, the challenges of a person that looked like me. So, you know, even throughout the, the, the PhD and, you know, the, those initial studies, the, the master's thesis, 
I was often the only one, right? And so you're, you feel sometimes that you're, you're questioned or, you know, you feel that you're, you're visible, but not so much. Also, it's a weird kind of situation. So these were some challenges that I faced. Uh, but again, surrounded by uh, the family, especially my parents, uh, really, um, really pushing me uh, very, very hard. They actually were, um, they uh, studied abroad as, as, as uh, the young uh, students themselves. There was an exchange between Belgium and Haiti at, that, at their time. So both of them went to university in Belgium. But they they had faced some of those hurdles, so they they wanted us to be prepared. Um, me, me and my sister. So fast forwarding uh, to the the postdoctoral level. So this is when I moved to the United States. So from Canada, you know, in a in a system that was predominantly white, I you know I was again I was aware that I was a black person, but I have to admit that in in the U.S. is where I. I really understood that I was black every day. You felt the air some, more, more frequently. More, yeah. more, more, more every day. Um, for some reason, maybe because I was also, I was old, getting older, right? I kind of became more conscious of, of, of that and some of the barriers that accompany um, this. But nevertheless, um, I kind of was able to find allies and fantastic mentors who I think embraced that difference and really helped me move forward. Uh, it started with the, the mentors at, at McGill University, of course, throughout my master's, the PhD, but then in the U.S. as well, those mentors that I still I still talk to today uh, and I still visit. Um, like, like not too long ago, I went to New York to give a, a talk at Columbia. I saw Joseph Gogos and I, I, I stayed with uh, Amy McDermott and, uh, and her husband. And her so, I mean, these two are just uh, phenomenal mentors and, and incredible supporters. Um, of course, in academia, again, we have been more made aware of some of the biases uh, associated with, with, um, with race. Initially, I kind of was trying to block <laughs> mm-hmm. those ideas to help to not make me deviate, right? Not make me lose energy because I'm, when you know something, you know it kind of makes you think. It makes you a little bit discouraged, of course. It makes you sad, angry, uh, but then you, you you need to try to block those thoughts and try your best to. Um, to push through and, and continue no matter what. But I have to say that uh, the knowledge of, of some realities is, you know, is, is making me reflect sometimes. Uh, it makes me find communities where I can uh, com- connect and, and share, share sometimes, you know, um, discouragement, but then also get some energy from them and then we just continue together. Allies also who do not look like me have been tremendous, have been key uh, to support uh, people that look like me. So there are fantastic allies that I would uh, not be able to be the, the person I am today without them. So you, you would put your mentors in that category? Yes, yes. And then colleagues who, who spoke up, who nominate me for some awards, uh, who appreciated when I spoke up during the, the Floyd uh, time, for example. So I had, uh, I, I uh, reached out to some friends, uh, colleagues from Boston, from Canada, from the US. We were all black women in different uh, fields. So I was in biology, there were some in psychology, some in law, and we kind of uh, created a, um, anti-racism um, kind of series for faculty and uh, those allies, you know, came and listened to us. Uh, we, we all learned together. We, we also learned to listen. And uh, so it was, it was fantastic. Wow. Like Zoom meetings, like when you say a series, like. Yes. Yes. We organized. So it was over Zoom because it was during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I saw a lot of my colleagues connect onto those Zoom calls where we kind of describe we describe what we we experiences, you know, our mm-hmm. experiences as a black woman, as as a black scholars, uh some of the 
microaggressions, how we perceive them. So describing, explaining those situations, uh, that, that was very useful for on both sides, for them <laughs> to hear what it is and for us to be able to explain and uh, appreciate uh, that they are trying their best to understand. And and it, maybe that's like, because you mentioned that you found community. So per, like, is this like the community of these black scholars? And Yes, that's right. That so you we formed? founded, right, at UMass, we, found, we formed uh, the black uh, PIs in, in STEM. So we would meet regularly over Zoom and talk and just briefly share uh, you know our concerns share our joys as well share the love of our work um, how we can continue to thrive even with these um, um, difficult times and then I became at some point the liaison between that group and the group of black students so wow. I would just be I was just excited to see them. I was proud of them. I could constantly tell them that we went out to lunch together. And some of them graduated. I became very emotional to see them leave. Some of them were still there. So it became a community. And also, again, um, some non-Black faculty and some non-Black students who kind of were there witnessing and and talking and trying to to be a part of that, uh, to, to support uh, this whole thing that was just very nice. Wow, that's a amazing leadership on your part. And, <laughs> well, thank, thank and I'm you. glad that, that that community formed because yes. uh, peer mentoring is is very valuable and it, right. it never ends. Even when you're a PI, I find that I, I want to consult things with my colleagues. Sometimes <laughs> it's like just to vent, to feel heard. And right. sometimes it's like, how do you deal with this? How do you do that? Yes. So there, there's... Mentoring never ends, seems like. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And so this, there are students also um, who told me that when they see some of us, it encourages them to to also become, you know, yes. a scholar and academic. You because, are so a role model. Absolutely. That's, so <laughs> representation matters. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much um, for sharing thank your you. story, for sharing your challenges. Um, and just to finish with a much lighter note, um, yes. I didn't warn you of this, so it's fine if you don't know what to say, but outside of the lab, what do, what do you do for fun or to relax or? Yes. Oh man. So, um, I have two kids. They are a mix of Haitian descent and uh, North African descent. So from Morocco. And so I just love to see them, uh, thrive and grow. They're, both of them have different skills. One of them for my daughter, who's 12 years old, she likes to play basketball. So I thought I was a very calm sports mom, but I am actually not. <laughs> so I'm very involved and very excited to cheer for her. My son is a soccer fan. He's really excited to play soccer. And also his team is it's like the UN. I mean, we have people from Ghana, from the Latinx community, from Africa, from the US. The team is beautiful and they are very successful together. Uh, so I really I lo- I love just spending time with those young kids and just um, with my family. Uh, I, I also go to see my family in Canada. We eat Haitian food, and we also travel abroad to see the Moroccan side of, of the family, which is uh, very grounding and it's peaceful. Again, they were one of the first nations to advance in Africa in the World Cup, so we're very big oh, <laughs> soccer fans. Oh, I remember. Fan. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the, 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 their cultural background is, is different but very similar to ours, so it is just nice to be able to spend time with all of them. That sounds amazing. So your kids' uh, sport life keeps you pretty busy, yes. plus family yes. and traveling the world, basically, yes. <laughs> to see yes. your family. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.